Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in Monument, Colorado, in the lion's den, and I have a guy that I met, Sam Voorhees. Sam, I remember seeing you around when you lived here in town, but I don't think I ever really interacted with you. And it wasn't until the very beginning of COVID when we started doing those virtual herfs, those virtual holy smokes. And uh, if I remember right, I think someone in South Florida, the South Florida group started and kind of did one of their own. I, I think it may have been George Hoskins that facilitated that one, or it might have been even been you. And I saw the link in the group and I jumped in and... Uh, yeah, dude, I freaking fell in love with you. I was like, this is a cool <laughs> dude. I want to get to know this guy more. Well, that's kind of you. <laughs> so first question, what you smoking? I am smoking a special edition Fuente soaked in bourbon. Ooh. Tell me about that. How'd you find it? What do you like about it? I was introduced to it in a cigar shop in Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> and especially for a morning cigar, it's, it's got a little, little bit of a sweetness to it. And nice. You, know, you can get the after flavor of the bourbon. Nice. And I am smoking, as a lot of listeners will expect, it's a Friday, so it's Floyd Friday. I'm smoking Comfortably Numb by Espinosa. In my opinion, this is the best dollar-for-dollar dollar cigar. Nice. I can get these for about two fifty a piece on Cigar Bid. And oh, wow. Between three dollars and two fifty, so depending on how good how good the bid is and where things are at and who's active. So, listening to your voice, I'm not a betting guy, but I'd wager you're from the South. Well, I grew up in a foreign country, actually, called South Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you, where I come from, they speak a foreign language and you eat all kind of different foods. <laughs> Very different foods down there. What kind of home did you grow up in? Well, my father died when I was three. Ooh, I'm sorry. And uh, consequently, we moved to my mother's home and my grandfather raised me. And I really never missed having a father. I can remember growing up and people saying, who's your dad? I'd say, oh, my father died. I, oh, I was so sorry. And I kept wondering why they felt sorry for me. I'm, I'm fine. We had a large extended family through my mother's family. Well, on both sides. My mother kept us very close to the Voorhees, my dad's family. Yeah. His parents were good Catholics. He had 15 brothers and sisters. So I have a very large extended family on the Voorhees side, which we've remained very close to. But I was raised by my, my grandfather. And my grandfather had a business in Louisiana involving hunting, trapping, fishing, the whole nine yards. If you've ever watched the Swamp People on the History Channel, those are my people. <laughs> Literally, I knew some of them. And we had a family business involved in doing that. I grew up skinning, hunting and skinning a mini of an alligator, catching frogs, trapping in the wintertime, a whole year round of seasonal activities off the land. 
Yeah. And um, from the time I was six years old, I was following my grandfather in the swamp, uh, learning that trade, if you will. Was your mother a stay-at-home? Did she have a job? What did she do for work? She worked in the family business for a while. The hunting and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it had other aspects to it. We had a biological supplies where we supplied injected frogs to schools to study and a whole variety of really interesting things. But yeah. So it had other aspects to it. But then later she became a dietitian and ran a nursing home practically. She worked at an optometrist's office. And in the end, I think her last job was at the university working more or less as an administrative assistant. She was a very resourceful woman, you know, raising in the end three kids. She remarried when I was seven and divorced when I was 10. So I have a a brother who came out of that marriage, an older sister than a younger brother. That three years is a little bit of a blank in my memory. Wasn't good. Wasn't good at all. It was a very Mm. abusive situation, both Mm. to her and to us as kids. Mm. And then she actually remarried for the final time, and they ended up being married 40 years when I went off to college. Mm. Uh, But she was a wonderful woman, very dedicated to her children, and did what she had to do to raise us and provide for us. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So what kind of a kid were you in high school? There were two different Sam Voorheeses in high school. The first one was I was functionally illiterate as a senior in high school. Really? Yeah. I'd never read a book through, never written a paper. Yet I kept passing from grade to grade. Now, this is South Louisiana we're talking about. Yeah. The reason I kept passing from grade to grade was because I played high school football, and I was good at it. What position? Positions. De- defensive end, linebacker, and tight end, basically. Uh, that's why I like you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mean. I mean, I knew how to hurt people. And I can't imagine you being mean. <laughs> it just it, in, in all of our conversations... You just have this warm, gentle, seemingly even-keeled personality. Am I missing something? Is there a layer to you that, that, that I don't <laughs> well, know? Yeah, that's right. Scr- I, haven't, I haven't found yet? Scratch the surface in there. Yeah, all kind of layers there, I'm sure. Well, you know, you had to be in the environment I grew up in. And you got to remember, this is 60s and 70s, so forth. And in, in, in that environment, the way we made our living and the work we did and so forth, you, you had to stick up for yourself. You had to be somewhat tough to make it. Now, yeah. my cousins were like brothers to me, and we all lived and worked in and around my grandparents' house. And the business was there, the shed and so forth and so on. And they were older than me, and they were big, tough, mean dudes. I mean, they beat people up just for the fun of it. And yeah. I, I was one of those people that got a slashing every now and then, so I had to learn to stand up for myself. And I want to say that it's wonderful, thinking back at this stage in my life, how fortunate I was to have that opportunity to 
be close to the extended family, to grow up in that working environment, and learn how to work. And in high school, we were as a small school, several hundred kids, and um, I'm still very close to uh, my high school friends. Even though I haven't lived in Louisiana for 50 years, I'm still very close mm-hmm. to those, those friends. But uh, when it came to football, I could be very mean. What did you do after high school? So here's the second person, uh, as I mentioned, two people in high school. The summer before my senior year is when I would say I had an encounter with Christ. Grew up off and on in the church seasonally because seasonal activities didn't, weren't conducive to attending. And my grandfather was a very committed Christian. Uh, and a very wonderful mm. example of, of mm. Christian faith that mm. I later understood after I became a Christian myself. He lived it. He didn't talk about it. And um, I was at a Christian camp, had an encounter with God where I was sitting in the pew hearing people go up and give their testimonies. And it would had been after an invitation kind of ceremony and so forth. And um, I kept thinking to myself, Lord, why don't I have a testimony? How come I don't have something to say about what you've done in my life? I really want to know you. I really want to follow you. And I kind of felt a little lost because I was going to finish school and I didn't know what the future held other than continuing to be a part of the family business, which was what my grandfather wanted. Anyway, sitting there, pouring myself out to God in that pew, I felt God come alongside of me in a very tangible way, like his physical presence came and sat down next to me and put his arm around me and said, I love you, Sam Voorhees. I forgive you of all those mean things you've done, among others. (laughs) And, you know, I, I have a future for you. I have a plan for you. And literally... Before I knew it, I was standing in the line to give my testimony of what had, I had experienced down sitting in that pew of God speaking to me in that way. Mm. I went home that summer a, a very different person, not entirely changed, still cussing and spitting. But knowing God loved me, he had a plan, and I wanted to follow him. I wanted to know him. And my high school classmates, and I just was speaking one not long ago, will testify being a different person that senior year. Mm. So here's what happened. I began to think, well, if I'm going to live my life for God, I ought to know something about him. And I'd never read the Bible. I'd never read anything. So people began to encourage me to go to Bible college. I began to pray and think, yeah, I should go to Bible college. Not so much to become a pastor or preacher, but to learn about the God who changed my life, who I wanted to serve. So I was planning to do that. My senior year was progressing. I was playing football, and there was conversations about my receiving a scholarship to play college football. Mm. Then I was in a real dilemma. God, what do I do? How do I not take this scholarship if I get it? Yet I feel like I should go to Bible college. As I was praying and the season was progressing, the fifth game of the season, I was injured. Never to play football again. Mm. 
I was diagnosed with a ruptured disc. Mm-hmm. Told I could never have any contact sport or yeah. anything ever again. I've since overcome that. But I thought, my goodness, that's an answer to my prayer. It was a painful answer, but it was an answer. And I felt like, yeah, I'm going off to Bible college. The end of the school year came. The guidance counselor called me in. He said, hey, Sam, there's this federally funded program called Vocational Rehabilitation. You should apply for it. It was like if you were disabled, the government would help pay your way to school to help you get a job. Because the school knew that you were functionally illiterate? Well, they knew I'd been injured. Oh, It was the injury. Okay. Okay. And um, I said, I'm working. I'm saving money. My back is fine. I'm okay. I don't need it. I wasn't going to go apply. And and they basically said, well, look, you got nothing to lose. Go, Go apply for it. I went and applied. They interviewed me. I said, I'm working. I'm saving money. My back is fine. Lo and behold... Uh, they looked at my medical, medical records, records, et cetera, et cetera. I got the scholarship. <laughs> the federal government literally paid my way through Bible college, university, right on up th- in part through graduate school at Wheaton College. So where did you go to Bible college? Where did you go to school? Started off at a small Bible college in Oregon, Illinois, as part of the church I'd grown up in, the Church of God. And here again, here's a bit of God's transformational work. I went up there not having the capacity to imagine that I could actually do it. I did not have the academic confidence that I could succeed. It was a small place. I got a lot of help. And uh, did you get caught up with, you know, your reading and well, here's what happened. Okay. A lot of help, struggled, struggled, struggled. I knew how to apply myself, worked hard. And by the end of the term year, my best effort was a C. Okay. I went home feeling kind of cocky about my C. (laughs) I told my mother, I'm going up to the university. There was one not far from where we lived in South Louisiana. And I'm going to take me a course. She said, now, son, now you did all right up at that little Bible college, but I don't know if you better go up to that university, fearing I'd have a failing experience. But I said, it's okay. Mom, the government will pay for it, which they would. Yeah. I went up and took a history course. And it was like a whole new world of information I didn't know existed, you know, out there. This Really? Yeah. And um, the first exam came along, and I was determined to show that I could compete, that I could do it. I studied, worked hard, struggled to prepare for that test, took the exam, got the exam back, big fat F. I launched up to Dr. Kurtz. God bless Dr. Kurtz. I said, Dr. Kurtz, I said, look, I want to learn, but I don't know what to do. I did everything I know to do. But yet I failed your exam. Will you help me? God bless Dr. Kurtz. That summer, he met with me two and three times a week after class. Taught me how to read for retention. Mm -hmm. Taught me how to take notes. Mm -hmm. Gave me mock exams. He taught me the basic fundamental skills of learning, which I did not have. By the end of the summer, guess what I was making in his class? B? 
an A. Dude. <laughs> Dude. Now the F brought me down to a B. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, it was all of a sudden, it's my God, I'm not a dummy after all. It had nothing to do with my intellectual potential. It was just the basic fundamental skills of learning. Huh. And I would say that experience and growing up as I did has been one of the fundamental things that have driven my trajectory of development as a person and ministry, especially in global development, dealing with the poorest people of the world. Knowing that, hey, these people, now I lived in Africa for 12 years working with the poorest of the poor. They, they don't lack intelligence. Most of them were much more intelligent than I was speaking multiple languages. They don't lack most motivation. What they lack is resource and opportunity. And you give them a little and they, they boy, they take off. And, and that's really starting to change through the affordability of cell phones and opening up the internet to that part of the world. Mm -hmm. I'm really honestly excited about what's going to happen. I, I, one of my favorite people that I listen to that I follow is Peter Diamandis. He's an mm. entrepreneur. Yeah. Started the X Prize yeah. and a number of businesses. And he has a podcast that he does with Dan Sullivan, who uh, runs Strategic Coach, called Exponential Wisdom. And the stuff that they're talking about that is coming in these exponential technologies that are coming into the educational space, that are coming yep. into all these spaces yep. that are basically democratizing information and opening it up to these areas exactly. of the world that have been traditionally poor. Yep. I'm excited to see the explosion of what's going to happen in yep. Africa and what is happening really in India and these other countries in Southeast Asia. It's really exciting to watch. Yeah, it is. The potential is huge. So, you go to grad school at Wheaton. Yep, meet my wife, Emily. Best thing that ever happened to me, other than meeting Jesus. And um, How long have you guys been married now? 40, I'm going to get this wrong probably, and I'll be in trouble. 42, <laughs> I think. How many kids? Three. Two boys and a daughter. One, our oldest son has our oldest granddaughter, five. Second son has our other two grandchildren, a daughter and a son, and then my daughter. When Emily and I were planning to get married, she had been working for Living Bibles International, Ken Taylor's effort to propagate the translation methodology of dynamic equivalent to create modern, more understandable translations around the world in the major languages. They hired their first regional director to start a work in Africa. They hired uh, Dr. Bata Mengistu, an Ethiopian. He and his wife were very good friends of ours, spiritual mentors to us. They were students at Wheaton. He went on to get his doctorate at Northwestern. They hired him. He began to pray that Emily would be willing to consider going to Africa to help him start that up and she was very good at management and communications, had a degree in cross-cultural communications, and knew the organization, and he was the visionary leader. Anyway, he began praying that prayer of, you know, would she be willing to consider that? And then when that prayer became known, I was quite excited about going to Africa. I had always had a childhood dream about going to Africa. It was not mm -hmm. a spiritual dream. 
It was a hunting and fishing dream. <laughs> so I would assume that you got some of that hunting and fishing dream fulfilled I while did. you were there. Oh, I did. <laughs> the smile on your face, uh, dude. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. My trophies are currently scattered about when we moved and sold our big Colorado home. My trophies are scattered about here in Colorado between Rick Christian and Steve and a few others. Anyway, so Ben and Sophie were in our wedding. They headed off to Kenya to establish a home there to find office space. This was in 79. And uh, in January of 1980, six months later, as we were getting adjusted to being married, we followed in what we thought would be a one-year faith adventure. No kids, no debts, get some freedom. Let's go have this faith adventure for a year and then come back and carry on with our careers. Well, that one year turned into a 30-year career for both of us in uh, different organizations and ministry in Africa and around the world. Where'd you go after that? We lived in Kenya for seven years, came back to the States. I ended up being with World Vision for 30 years. Hmm. And I was with them on and off. I came and went several times. Mm -hmm. In fact, twice voluntarily and twice involuntarily. Yeah. Uh, Not all smooth sailing, but a wonderful, wonderful privilege of working with World Vision. So one of those periods, I came back involuntary when when there was layoffs. We came back from Kenya after seven years, and I went back to school, and that's when I did my Ph.D. at Florida State University. Really with the goal of, number one, proving that I could do it to myself. Number two, (laughs) I had worked in the field of social, economic, spiritual development long enough to want to study some really challenging issues around how do we tackle social economic poverty that has a spiritual dimension to it and the juxtaposition between individual development, family, community, and and national development when it came to the interplay of social economic issues, either impeding it or encouraging it. Uh, World Vision asked me to come back to work for them, uh, actually supported me in my Ph.D. work. We then ended up living and working out of our California office for several years, then went back to Africa as part of an effort to establish a regional office in Zimbabwe, dividing Africa into three regions. Yeah. Ended up there for five years, and... Uh, We came to a period where we felt like it was time to return to the States for our kids to reconnect with the extended family before it was too late. Kids were getting older, going into high school and college. Parents were getting older. Emily was at that time offered a job back with uh, the International Bible Society, which had merged with Living Bibles, and uh, asked her to come here to join the team in Colorado. And that's what brought us to Colorado in 1998. And uh, I had resigned from World Vision at that point for us to make that move. They wanted me to stay in Southern Africa and to move to South Africa. We felt God leading us to come back. I resigned. She took this job. We came here. 
And uh, then World Vision came back to me and said, hey, by the way, that program you were involved in helping to start in Southern Africa on leadership development, we'd like to make that global. Would you come back and help help develop it? And oh, by the way, raise the money for it and uh, so forth. And I said, yes, as long as I can live in Colorado. <laughs> They said yes, and so I, I continued to work for what was in from 98 to 2010 from Colorado, having a global position. I, I ended up being the global director for leadership and organizational development of World Vision. Mm. They allowed you to do it from Colorado. What, what drew you here? Colorado? Yeah. Well, Emily's work to start with, because... Yeah. They had asked her to come yeah. be here and work out of that office. And then the longer we're, we were here, the more we got established in terms of the, our friends and community, including Holy Smokes. And um, I love the mountains, love the mountains, love hunting here and uh, hiking and mountain biking and skiing and did it all and continue to do it all. Yeah. But sadly, Emily the allergies here really get to her. Yeah, she suffers significantly from the allergies here and was headed to a beach every chance she got and didn't particularly like the cold. Where and is she originally from? South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. It's like my folks in Louisiana said, well, she's not from Louisiana, but at least she's from the, the South. South. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, in 2010, I left World Vision and didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to jump into another job. And you can appreciate World Vision. When I left World Vision, it was a $2.7 billion organization with 40,000 staff. And a lot of our people have gone on to lead other organizations. So I've had a pretty big network. And anyway, started getting calls to help other leaders, other organizations, and eventually developed my own consulting business of leadership and organizational development, primarily working with international NGOs, ministry organizations, about 50, 60 percent of the time, and then corporate organizations, about 40 percent of the time. And did that for 10 years, and then got a call one day from a recruiting firm whom I had helped find positions. And they said, hey, Sam, we got this position down at a place called Palm Beach Atlantic University. And we think you should consider it. Which is a Christian school, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I said, Palm Beach Atlantic University, number one, that's in Florida. I'm not going to Florida. Why? I didn't want to leave Colorado. Okay. And, and I didn't know the university. And uh, so I said, no, thank you. I'm really not interested. Here are three people I think would be good candidates. A few months went by, forgot about it, got another call. Hey, Sam, none of these people are going to work out. We took the liberty of sharing your credentials with the university, and they've asked, would you please take another look and reconsider? As an aside... Emily happened to be passing by, and I said, hey, honey, by the way, there's this place called Palm Beach. I didn't have to get past Beach. And she said, well, of course you're going to consider it. (laughs) 
if nothing else, we'll go down for the interview and have a few days and get out of this blasted cold weather here in Colorado. I said, okay, I'm not expecting anything and so forth, and, but I'll throw my hat in the ring anyway. Yeah, I, I, I think it's funny when people that come from warmer climates come here and they complain about the cold. Having grown up in Wisconsin, man, this is easy. It is, it, it is such an easy, mild winter. I mean, this is a story. I don't think I've told this on the podcast yet. My first Christmas that I went back. So I moved here in 97. Yeah. My first Christmas that I went back to Wisconsin. It was minus 15 here and minus 15 in Wisconsin. The minus 15 here, I had my coat half zipped. Right. had my scarf draped around my neck. Right. I probably had gloves on, but... I walked into the airport and I was fine. As soon as I stepped out of the airport in Madison, Wisconsin, on the walk from the airport to my dad's car, my jeans froze. That when you're up there in, in that kind of a cold, there's a humidity in the air that it stiffens your jeans and it makes them, and you just feel that cold and it cuts through to your bones. And yeah. Well, that's what I tell people. I, I've been colder and South Louisiana and that swamp that I've been up here is so dry. Yes. So no, I, I love the winter and miss it. Anyway, <laughs> so I threw my hat in the ring yes. and they're smart. They brought us down for the interview in December. And, uh, and lo and behold, asked me to, to take a position there. And what was the position they were offering? They wanted me to help to come and start a new center of excellence. So they have these professional centers they were innovating, if you will, as a university that were centers of excellence intended to, on one hand, reach out to the professional business community, and on the other hand, students, as well as faculty and staff. And so they were asking me, and they had an initial startup donation to seed it, to start something called the Center for Biblical Leadership with a focus on integrating leadership best practices with a biblical worldview and a sound theological perspective. So as Emily and I went and met the people, fell in love with the school, their mission, their vision, the staff, and of course it was a West Palm Beach. You don't get any better than that when it comes to South Florida. Palm Beach Island, Singer Island. Uh, we both felt very clearly God calling us to that. Now, I had always had this vision of, as part of my final phase of my career, being involved with the university. It was one of my motivations for getting the PhD. PhD. I wanted to have the qualification that would allow me that opportunity. What it, was that? What was that inside of you that you wanted to do that? Well, it was Dr. Kurtz. Really? It was going back to Dr. Kurtz, who had helped me as a struggling student find my way to the potential that I didn't realize I had because of some of that basic skills yeah. Yeah. and motivation. Yeah. And Wheaton, uh, people again, who I remember sitting across from a, one of the professors who had been a missionary and had been, done some work in Africa and was pouring into me and just thinking, wouldn't it be great one day if I could have a little bit of that experience and have the chance to influence students like he's influencing me? So that was always part of the, the dream and the vision. It's amazing how meeting one person 
can completely and totally change the trajectory of your life. I mean, that's been a big prayer of mine for the boys is yeah. that the right people come around them at the right time to open up really what God has for them in their future. And it can be innocuous in the sense of you may not realize how big of an impact you're having on that other person as in terms of the witness you're having for Christ. Dr. Dobson tells a story often about this psychologist that he met. I don't remember if it was in college or high school, but he took the time to sit down with him and kind of explain, hey, this is what I do. This is the benefit and kind of, and just poured into him yeah. just enough that that's where he went. And he became Dr. James Dobson because of that one person that influenced him at that time. Exactly. And you can't you just cannot underestimate the impact of that model and example. And that was true of my grandfather. As I started reflecting back, as I was seeking to become a Christian, grow as a Christian in my faith, you know, study the Bible in this struggle between sort of the cognitive side of learning about the Bible and knowing your scripture, but living it, I began to realize, my God, he, he didn't read or write, but he lived the Christian faith. He was an example and model of it. And that was the most powerful witness, mm. not just talking about it. So what year did you go down to Palm Beach Atlantic? Going on three years ago now. And so went down there with the goal of uh, starting that center, getting it up and running, and um, sustainable, mm -hmm. and then turning it over to somebody to run. Uh, what, what was the impetus behind handing it off and well, semi-retiring now? I figured I better practice what I preach, meaning the goal of the center and my goal is to develop other leaders. And I needed to practice that by finding someone who could run it and lead it into the future. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the person to take it to the next level. Okay. And it needs a younger person to do that. And so I felt that's really amazing self-awareness to know that, hey, this is my role. This is what I want to do. I want to find someone and then finding someone and being like, OK, here you go. And I still want to be involved. I still yeah. support it. I help. I developed the strategy and the vision and the mission. And that's still burning in my heart to see that fulfilled. And I'll do whatever I can to support it and be involved. And but it needs others to take it forward. And, and I, I believe those things are in place and, and that will happen and we'll see what God has in store next. What is next? What do you see for this next season? Because you're not done. You're, how old are you now? 68. You look really good. I mean, <laughs> no, seriously, dude. Thank you. Seriously. I mean, you're healthy, you're in shape, you're sitting here in shorts and it's 45 degrees out right now. It's going to be, you know, I, I guess a high of 61 today, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's gonna warm you're, up. You're, you're going out for a hike. We got to wrap this thing up at the top of the hour, but because <laughs> you're going on a hike over by Palmer Lake. Well, the truth of the matter is during the final months of this work at the university, I, I was close to burnout a couple of times. Really? It was a heavy lift bringing about change in a university context. 
And um, again, when the opportunity to do what I was planning to do from a succession, turn it over, came, I felt like it was the right mm-hmm. time and that I needed a, a break. Mm-hmm. And I got to realizing after leaving World Vision, 10 years of consulting, either chasing work or trying to keep up with work, and then jumping into this, which was a, a seven-day-a-week effort to get it going, raise the funds, develop programs, so forth and so on. You know, I was exhausted. And uh, my wife, of course, could see it better than me, but point being, needed a real break. Yeah. So taking what I call a sabbatical, I'm not quite yet ready to talk about retirement, and really wanting to give us some time to renew and refresh, me some time to recalibrate, and time and space to hear from God and and rest and recover and wait on the Lord. I think one of the spiritual lessons for me, even in that transition, yeah, was a couple of things. One is control. And this is where I think we're really suffering in epidemic proportions in the Christian world around leadership is a lot of leaders, and particularly it seems Christian leaders, have a, an easy time coming to a leadership role. I feel called to that role. You know, I get promoted to that role. Isn't it wonderful how God has blessed me? And I'm, now I'm the leader. I'm in charge. I've got a vision. <clears throat> but they have a ho- lot harder time being called out, <laughs> letting go of that mm-hmm. role and go yeah. of that leadership. Yeah. And even in this situation where I felt like, boy, there's more I could do. There's dreams and visions I have to fulfill. This programs I started, I want to see you know, carried out, I felt God was clearly in it telling me, no, it's time to step aside. Mm. And I think letting go of control and realizing God is not dependent on me, he doesn't need me to carry out that vision. And if it's his vision, he wants it to be achieved, it'll happen. And being willing to let go of control and step aside and trust him for what's next, knowing that He's only going to use this experience to prepare me for what's next as part of my own spiritual journey. And waiting on Him versus trying to make it happen myself. I love C.S. Lewis's quote, Our highest act is one of response, not initiative. Mm. So you're taking this time traveling. And I would say uh, grandkids. Yeah. We got to thinking and reflecting. We've got this small window of time where the kids are young enough they want to be with us, and yeah. we're still young and fit enough we can enjoy being with them and doing some active things with them. And yeah. part of my own desire to be fit and motivation is to stay fit enough so I can go mountain bike with them. True. Mountain biking, skiing, yep. and all the rest of it. Yep. And um, That's awesome. So I'm, I'm struggling to keep fit for, for that purpose. That's awesome. All right, Sam Voorhees, let's get to rapid-fire questions. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid-fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you, as a listener, can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes. By becoming 
a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, holy smoke swag like t-shirts and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of $10 a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant and web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle and I want to go to Dallas and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina and I want to go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, DC, Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax-deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club. That's paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. So when did you first try Cigars or Pipe? Well, it was with Brother K. Hiramini. He just corrupted me right from the very start. <laughs> How'd you meet K? Well, you know, I can't remember the moment of meeting K, but it was here in Colorado around his fire pit in the early days of Holy Smokes. And, you know, we became very close friends and partners have worked together and and the family and the brotherhood and sisterhood have been, yeah, very close and meaningful. Hmm. You're a cigar guy, but do you ever do pipe? No. I think I would enjoy a pipe. I just have never attempted it or, yeah. What's your favorite cigar? I don't know that I have a favorite yet. I'm enjoying this uh, Fuente, bourbon soaked Fuente, but... I'm a light cigar smoker, meaning, uh, you know, I go for a lighter smoke, Connecticut kind of yeah. wrap. You have to let me know. I, I gave you a comfortably numb by Espinosa, and you'll have to let, please let mm. me know what you think about that one. It's kind of a medium bodied, but everyone I've given it to, given I, one I, to. I've tended to lean towards cigars uh, from Honduras versus mm. Nicaragua. Okay. I don't know why, but. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked. I don't know. I don't really know. I have to confess, I am a cheap cigar person. All right. What's your best dollar-for-dollar cigar, then? What's a go-to? Well, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I discovered it in an ABC liquor market in Florida that a friend put me on to. You can buy a batch of 20 for about $35. And it's a Honduran... Cigar. When you moved to Palm Beach, you told me a story about a na- you're, you're staying at this condo apartment building, and your neighbor <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Roger. <laughs> Tell that story. Well, my neighbor, who was on the board, interviewed us to be accepted into the condo community. And uh, I kept on the floor, there was a place where you go put your trash. And I kept seeing these really nice, expensive cigar boxes in there. And I got to think, I got to find out who on this floor s- smokes good cigars. And sure enough, it was Roger. So I got chatting with Roger and and uh, said, yeah, uh, me and John, who was the chairman of the board, uh, like to get out on the balcony and smoke one occasionally. You know, won't you come join us? So I did. So we started developing a relationship of smoking out on the balcony, uh, even though which, it w- which, even though it wasn't. Yeah, we, even though it wasn't allowed. But it was for him mm-hmm. because. Well, apparently uh, there was a grandfather clause of uh, <laughs> if you'd been there smoking before they passed that policy, you could still do it. Anyway, they were the <laughs> chairman and the board. It's always good to have friends with connections. So then uh, Roger moved, and the guy who took over his, uh, bought his condo, I also learned that he smoked. And so I was chatting with him one day, and he said, yeah, why don't you come join? He says, in fact, he said, Roger decided he was going to stop smoking when he moved, and he left his humidor full of cigars and I don't really smoke that much and if you'd like to come over and get a few please do so I try not to be too selfish and take too many but I grab a few anyway time went on and then eventually uh, John was his name came to me and said you know Sam I too am going to quit smoking he said if you wouldn't mind would you just come and take the whole humidor and cigars (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was and is a beautiful piece of furniture and it was like four shelves full of nice. very nice very expensive cigars so i have learned to enjoy expensive cigars but my you just not purchase them my dutch heritage just you know prevents <laughs> me from spending too much money myself what's your favorite liquid pairing with your smokes bourbon of one sort or another do you have a particular Style, a particular brand that you're really into? No, but again, with my sweet tooth, I discovered something in Tennessee really recently called dark roast bourbon. And it's got a little coffee mm-hmm. in it. Mm. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Boy, that's hard. Well, of course... K is uh, the source of uh, my cigar smoking, and uh, he's he's the favorite person that's named. <laughs> he's <laughs> so, named most often with right. that question. So uh, I should add, like I have with the, my second to last question, I should have a, I should have a caveat in there. Who's the most interesting person you've met through cigars? Can't name K. Yeah, that's right. Can't name K. <laughs> and really, what's been wonderful about Holy Smokes is two things. Well, more than two, but one is the local gathering of people where you can have a group of men and women, often primarily men, but who can come together, have a relationship of honesty and vulnerability, 
And, um, you know, whether you're some entrepreneur that's made millions, if not billions, or somebody who's just struggling to get started, you know, it's just a common leveling of, hey, yeah. let's share our faith in Christ around a cigar and a good drink and and be open about the journey of faith, which has got its ups and downs. And, and stop wearing a mask of, you know, I'm in control and look what I've done. But, you know, look by the grace of God what God has done. And the second is the people that come through, through the networks that we all have of people in ministry around the world. So there's been some fascinating folks, yeah, mm. had the privilege of meeting. Most memorable cigar experience? Well, it might be this one. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite food? Anything from Louisiana. Gumbo. Jambalaya etouffee. And I make it a policy never to order anything that says Cajun on it outside of Louisiana because I'm going to be disappointed. (laughs) Have you ever been to a restaurant outside of Louisiana that has met your expectations? Very, very rarely. Any here in Colorado? There has been one in the past. I don't know if it's still around. Now the name's going to slip me downtown Colorado Springs. Mama Pearls? Yeah, Mama Pearls. And what happens, of course, is they all tend to migrate to appeal to the local, you know, environment. And so the things kind of change a little bit. But they certainly had genuine recipes and are the real thing. Hmm. But it still tastes different in Louisiana. Really? I don't think I've ever been to Louisiana. Oh, well, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> It is a different world, and... uh, I've seen enough TV shows around Louisiana to understand it's a whole different world. And New Orleans is a very special city. It has its problems and struggles, but it's a very fascinating mix of cultures. Spanish, French, Creole, uh, fascinating mix of, of people and cultures. What is Creole? Creole is... Really a mixture Okay. that is often, it can be black and white, it can be Indian and black, as in African black, yeah. or all three, or it can be Spanish, you know, and it's, it's a mix. Hmm. And there are all kinds of Creole and Creole languages, and of course you get Creole in Haiti and so forth, but, and Cajun, you're familiar with Cajun? Yes. From Arcadia. Okay. So the French who had settled the province of Arcadia in Canada were run out by the British. And literally, the British put them on boats, pushed them out into the ocean, and they were on their own sailing down the eastern seaboard uh, to survive. By the hundreds, a few dropped off along the way, but eventually they sailed the majority of them literally around Florida up until the marshlands of South Louisiana and thought, they'll never kick us out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where they settled. And uh, so it became Acadia, Cadia, Cadia, Cajun is just really a derivation of Arcadia, hmm. the province, Cajun. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Well, 
neither now, growing up, dogs, but dogs who were both your best friend but your hunting partner. Yeah. So they were working dogs. They yeah. weren't yeah. lap dogs. Yeah. And we had dogs till our kids went off, but yeah. Did you have a nickname growing up or in college? Brother. Brother. Where'd that come from? I don't really know, but all my cousins in Louisiana to today call me brother. Hmm. Interesting. And it was from an early age, so, but I don't know who, who originated it. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I don't know. All right, if you think of one, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll bring it up. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? Well, the one that actually came on my mind last night as we were talking in this room with a group is called Sacred Waiting. Mm. Tim Timmons, I believe, is an Australian, teaches at Biola, from Biola. Mm -hmm. And it really is a wonderful theological treatise of both the example of Christians or the example of the prophets and waiting on God throughout Old Testament, New Testament. And again, the principle of waiting on God, back to C.S. Lewis's quote, and of course, Blackaby has taught this very well, where we need to be following God's lead, response to his activity versus mm-hmm. taking initiation ourselves. And I would say, aside from that, one that comes to mind immediately is the celebration of disciplines, uh, Richard Foster. I think one of my real spiritual turning points was in really 25, maybe even 30 years into my faith journey, realizing that a lot of my Christian experience had turned into a works theology. Mm-hmm. Look at what I'm doing for you, God. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm a workaholic by personality and by nature, but that workaholism had also become, you know, look what I'm doing for you, God. Look what I've accomplished. And that's part of what had previously led to my own burnout, burnout. experience of realizing, my goodness, you know, I'm, I'm doing for God, but I'm not really walking with God in an intimate relationship of, mm. of intimacy where mm. I know him as my father. Mm. And uh, that was a turning point for me. With that kind of mentality, has this sabbatical so far been difficult, challenging? Yes, because I'm still trying to wind down and find that quiet space Mm. to listen Mm. and uh, be still before him. Mm. Part of what we're doing is traveling across the country in a van, sprinter van. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, especially when you're not staying in one place very long, traveling in a van is a lot of work. (laughs) So I haven't had a lot of quiet time. Mm. But uh, that time's coming. And um, we'll we'll take as it comes. All right. Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Well, again, it, it means a group of people that I can sit with, be myself, not be afraid to share 
both my successes and failures, be open and vulnerable in a genuine way and know that that will be reciprocated. And uh, at the same time, enjoy a cigar and a Mm. nice drink. And so some really wonderful relationships of people that I know that, hey, if I need praying for and they say they're going to pray for me, they mean it. They're not just BSing me. Mm -hmm. If I need help or advice or counsel, I can call and I'm going to get it. Mm. You know, it's just what the church is and Christian community is supposed to be about. Mm. I think uh, you can experience in holy smokes in a in a real way. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. One would be my grandfather, although he didn't smoke. <laughs> but I think being able to, in his story and my story, is, has another whole story to it, but of his own faith journey. But just to be able to share looking at things where I see him now and what I observed about his life would be a wonderful thing to do at some point. And maybe we'll have that opportunity in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, I think, would, of course, be, yeah. He's an interesting cat. He is. And, of course, he's he's like everybody else. If you only know the surface of his life by reading his books, you kind of have one impression if you dig deeper and you know a little bit about his personal journey, well, he, by God, he was a real human being who struggled emotionally, spiritually in his own life, had his ups and downs. And again, I think it's true with all of us. You know, God uses people despite our frailties and sinfulness and weakness and struggles. And he was certainly one of those people and has had an in big impact on so many people around the world. And of course, we like to use him as one of our icons of holy smokes for yes. pipe and cigar yes. smoking. Yeah. I'll stop there for the moment. Okay. So two. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a nice bourbon and a nice cigar, what are we kicking back and celebrating? Well, that I have been able to let go and uh, not try to control things, make the transition of what I was doing to the next phase of what God has in store, and am resting in His, His lead, being available to respond to His initiation, and both savor this period of knowing that he'll accomplish what he wants to as I truly Mm. depend on him Mm. and not myself. Mm. Sam Voorhees, may it be. Thank you, brother. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. It's a privilege and a pleasure, and I appreciate all you're doing to make it happen. Mm.